Father, we do thank you for this time. We are here to learn from you, about you. We are here to exalt you. We are here to be motivated by you to proclaim the great truths of your word, to acknowledge and to loudly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in no one else. And so, Lord, we would ask that you'd superintend to our time, be honored by it, cause us to be bold, strong, courageous people because of it, that you would be glorified in it all, in Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to speak on something this morning that has been a challenge for me, really, to think through. You noticed, I'm sure, that the title of my message this morning is Conversion, the Only Real Answer. And of course, we know that as Christians. But many of you may not know that there has been taking place in our world a concerted effort to attack biblical truth and promote as normal the lies of the evil one. Of course, we could point out a whole host of areas in which that is being done this morning. I could spend our entire time this morning just going categorically through issue after issue after issue that we see going on in our world whereby the evil of our world is promoted. But one of the most visible ways is through the promotion of the homosexual lifestyle and the homosexual agenda as being natural and part of the created order of God. It has become even more prevalent in our society and world by means of the redefinition of what constitutes gender and what constitutes the acceptance of any notion of sexual perversion. In fact, just to the north of us in the nation of Canada, a new law has been passed. It was made law on January 8th, and it attacks the truth of conversion. You may not know this, but there are already 14 states within our own United States who have currently already passed similar laws, albeit more narrow than the Canadian law, but it is already here in our nation And I need to speak about this today in the issue of conversion in order to to make a solidarity stand with our Christian brothers and sisters who live in Canada. But also I want to take a stand and really drive a stake in the ground, if you will, about what the Bible says and who we are to be as Christians when it comes to this doctrine. 
On January 8th, the law was put into effect in Canada. And like I said, it has already trickled down in many ways to our own nation. It is called Bill C-4 in Canada, and it amends their criminal code to prohibit certain activities that relate to what they call conversion therapy, which the word therapy is just a psychological term for them. But they define it as a practice or treatment or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or to change a person's gender identity to cisgender. I had to look that up. I didn't know what cisgender was. You may not either. It means your gender at birth, the gender God gave you. So they've rewritten the criminal code to prohibit any talk of a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or to change a person's gender identity or to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth and even to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, to repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to that person at birth. All of that is simply to say this, as they go on to say, the bill would discourage and denounce harmful practices and treatments that are based on myths and stereotypes about the LBGTQ2 community. These include myths and stereotypes that the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of LGBTQ2 people are undesirable conditions that can or should be changed. Therefore, they say, it would not criminalize, however, conversations in which a person expresses an opinion on sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, and this is the part that concerns all of us, unless... You can have conversations, that's not prohibited, unless that conversation forms part of an intervention designed to make a person heterosexual or cisgender. Now, we may not fully grasp the danger posed by that, but suffice it to say that what is in that law is an attack, a direct attack upon the church. You say, why? Because we, as Christians, are in the conversion business. This is what we do. This is why we are here. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us into His dear kingdom. The kingdom of His Son. The kingdom in which we have been transferred from dark to light. The kingdom in which we have been transferred from death to life. The kingdom in which we have been converted to be into. We are in the conversion business. The gospel converts people. The gospel changes people. It takes them from death to life 
It changes them from the old life to the new life. It removes the enmity that they have between God and them. It calls them to obedience in Christ. In a nutshell, it converts them. The gospel is about conversion. And conversion is the only answer for the sinner. And therefore, we cannot be silenced on this issue. We must not be silent on this issue. We cannot be quiet. We must speak the truth to all people. They cannot. We cannot allow. We cannot stand with laws that say we cannot speak the truth. We must speak about gospel conversion to every issue, and especially in our sexually perverted world. How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, there is a a verse in God's Word that the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians that I believe sums up the reason in the most profound way. It is, again, one of those foundational principles for living as a Christian. One of those presuppositional truths that we must never forget. It's found in Galatians 6, verse 7, or chapter 6, verse 7. I'm just going to read it. We're not going to spend our time in this verse, but I just want to read it because it's, it's really the underlying presuppositional position as to why we're here. Paul says to the believers in Galatia, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now that truth is not difficult for us to understand. Especially for us who live here in New England in an agrarian, somewhat agrarian society. We are surrounded by open fields upon which various things are planted and grow. And so the principle is very clear. Whatever it is that you put into the ground, in time, the fruit of that seed will be produced. What you sow, you will reap. And so it's an axiomatic principle If you put corn in the ground, you can expect that corn will come from that seed. And so the conclusion can simply be said this way. That idea, sowing and reaping, is just simply common, God-given sense. You would not expect to find grapes coming from the seeds of thorns. To expect something else is, by definition, insanity. It is insanity. You plant something in the ground, and you, you plant an apple seed in the ground, and you expect orange, oranges to come out of the ground. You are, by definition, just being insane. You're insane because of that axiomatic truth principle. What you sow, you reap. Well, this is the principle that I want us to kind of look at this morning in the book of Romans. 
Take your Bibles and open them with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What man reaps is the direct result of what man has sown. Now, as we we think through this principle, we need to remember that that this flies directly in the face of much of what the world believes and professes concerning man, concerning man's thinking, concerning the living of man and how man goes about life. What we're going to see this morning goes right in the face of all that they, they carry out in their own thinking. Because when it comes to man's nature, man in himself denies the sowing and reaping principle. Man denies what Galatians 6-7 says, at least by virtue of his own nature. He may see that principle in action with nature and, and the agrarian reality of planting seeds and growing food, but when it comes to his own nature, he just denies it, and the law in Canada reflects that reality. They call sexual immorality a myth. They call it a stereotype, just a psychological makeup of mankind. They call what God has done a myth. So from chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, all the way to really to the end of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul shows the theological truth that man is not by his very nature good. He is not neutral, but he is in fact by his very nature wicked. And when we as believers and when we as mankind understand that man is wicked, we also understand that man is innately bent in his very nature, away from the things of God. He is bent towards self, which only reaps wickedness. Man is wicked, that is the seed of man, and so man, being wicked, plants the seed of wickedness and produces, therefore, wickedness. This is exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The psalmist goes on to say, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, and yet they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so right there in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, this comprehensive statement from God concerning the nature of all humanity. All people are wicked. And because all people are corrupt in their very beings... In their very heart, they are against God. No one in and of their own nature seeks after God. In fact, the Apostle Paul will go on to even say this in chapter 3 of Romans, beginning in verse 10 through 12, quoting 
Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. It is a desperate picture. So the Apostle Paul lays out very clearly that this then is the seed of man, and it is then what man has sown, wickedness. He, by his very nature, has chosen to ignore God and his assessment of man. He sees man as good when in fact man is wicked, and so he is reaping the fruit of that seed of rejection. The sad result is that as much as man might believe that through his own efforts he can deal with his wickedness, deal with his sin issues, trying to, by various behavioral techniques, improve himself before a holy God, what truly takes place is not a closer relationship with God. It is not a movement closer to God at all. In fact, it is a movement away from God. He only ends up in a worse case because he's rejected God. His own prideful self-worship comes to the forefront in all of its ugliness. And all that is is a denial of God altogether. So the person who sows self-righteousness reaps not a closer relationship with God, but actually a deeper deception about his own sin and a further, further alienation from God. So what we see taking place in godless humanity today, the writing of these laws, both in the nation of Canada and around the world and even in our own countries, what we see happening, as it has always been, man's perpetual descent farther away from God because of his own self-imposed deception and denial about God, which is why he needs conversion. Which is why we will never be quiet about conversion. If a law ever comes to this very state, and if it ever becomes the law of the land, even in our country, and they come and haul me from this pulpit because I'm preaching about conversion, someone ought to stand up and run up here and begin to preach it again. So it is not a pretty picture. It only gets worse, really, as time marches on. Why? Because man cannot stop his slide down the slippery slope of idolatry. Why? Because, like Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he is a slave to sin. Sin owns him. Sin owns him. And it is his sin that he sows, and it is the consequences of his sin that he therefore reaps. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book entitled The Problem of Pain. In that book, he states this conclusion of man. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded 
and are therefore self-enslaved. I think that's a great quote. It's a great picture for the heart of man. C.S. Lewis is saying that because man has demanded to live outside and independent of God's design for man, that man has reaped the fruit of being enslaved to self and all of the consequences that come with that. That's the major point of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32. Nothing could be more frightening as a consequence for sowing than what Paul describes for us beginning in verse 24, however. Notice what Paul says in verse 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips and slanderers. They are haters of God, insolent and arrogant and boastful and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, unjust, unworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Sounds exactly like the law I just read. Giving hearty approval to those who practice such wickedness. Man, by his very nature, has chosen against God's design to sow the seed of rebellion against God and the denial of God. And God's answer to that sowing is God's judicial abandonment of man. His judicial abandonment of man. When Paul says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, that revealing of God's wrath is seen through God's abandonment of man to himself. Abandoning man to his own devices. It's as if God takes his hands off the wheel and lets the vehicle drive its own way. You notice in just those nine verses that I read, The Apostle Paul says three times, God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them 
over. In other words, what man has reaped as a fruit of his rebellion against God is God leaving man to his own wickedness, to his own sinful desires. And when that occurs, beloved, nothing can be worse. Nothing can be worse than God to say, have it your way. Have it your way. That is exactly what we see happening today. Sexual immorality running rampant in our world and now being accepted as the norm, even outlawing any talk to, be, to bring about a change to it, outlawing the gospel is the outworking of what man has sown. A rejection of God, and therefore God says, have it your way. The late Puritan writer Thomas Brooks once said it this way, God is never more angry than when he does nothing. God is never more angry than when he does Nothing. That's a frightening reality. Why? Because when man is left to himself, when God has removed restraint, is man is not only more vulnerable to the schemes of the evil one, but he's also suffers he suffers the damning destruction that his own sin works out in his own life. Man needs conversion. He needs conversion. And so man's soul's rebellion against God. To say the say it in the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 18, man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And how that suppression is delineated is listed for us in verses 19 to 23. You can read that on your own. I'm not going to spend time going through that. What man reaps from that rejection of God's ownership of them, what man reaps for rejecting God is God's abandoning wrath and it's full of consequences. In verse 24 to 32, tell us what those consequences look like. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. I believe Paul lists there three times God gave them over. And I, I, I think there's, there's really three consequences that man has been given over to. Man has been abandoned to the, to the core of his sinfulness. Man has been abandoned to the character of his sinfulness. And man has been abandoned to the coverage of his sinfulness. Verse 24 and 25, the core of his sinfulness. Verse 26 and 27, the character of his sinfulness. And verse 28 to 32, the coverage of his sinfulness. This is the totality then of man's wickedness, man's rejection of God, God abandoning man to himself. This is the totality of his wickedness. The source is the core. How it's lived out is his character. And how far reaching it is, is the coverage. 
And each one of those is a spiral further and further and further away from God, not closer to God. And all we have time for really this morning, and all I want to speak about today, is this first one, verses 24 and 25, the core of man's sinfulness. Because I think this, this gives us really a context for which we can think through what is happening in our world And you can go on and follow down through the rest of those in verses 26 through 32. Verse 24 and 25 is the core of sinfulness. This is the source. This is the outworking where it all happens. This is the beginning. Paul says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And of course, Paul begins those two verses by referring back to what he's already spoken about in verses 18 to 23, hence the word therefore. Right? In other words, this is the sowing and reaping principle at work. This judicial abandonment has everything to do with man sowing a rebellion against God. And although God has clearly made himself known to man, as verse 18 to 23 clearly tell us, man in his own foolishness and his own wickedness has pushed that aside. He has willfully suppressed that knowledge. He has denied God and man has declared himself to be wise even in his denial. Verse 22 says he professes to be wise. There are even foolish, and I'll even use the word stupid scientists today who try to explain homosexuality by means of genealogy, genomes, and all kinds of other fancy ways of using scientific nonsense to try to say, ah, people are born that way. Well, they're born that way only in this sense, that they deny God. They're born wicked. But they're not born biologically as a man who believes they're a woman. They're not born that way. They're not born as a biological woman who has relationships with other biological women in a sexual context. They're not born that way. They exercise their wickedness that way, but they're not born. They're not created that way. God has clearly made himself known. And man has rejected God and therefore God has given them over. Gave them over is one word in the original language. It's a very intense word. Literally means to allow something to be taken. Now think about that. God, in the sense of the words of the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 1, gives this sense, at least in verses 18 to 23, that there was this this sense of restraint that God was keeping man back from his own fullness of rebellion. God was holding back the, the full expression of the sinful heart. 
And yet here in verse 24, you have this transition. Therefore, because of the way man responded to God in his graciousness to make himself known and would not acknowledge God and suppress the truth of God in his own unrighteousness, God therefore allowed them to be taken. God removed his restraining hand. word is used in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 where it talks about John the Baptist being taken into custody. It says in verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Those words taken into custody is the very same original word that is used here in verse 24. John was handed over by force to someone else. So it's judicial, it's legal, it's this legal judicial idea. And it carries with it this judgment dynamic, this idea of judgment that that God is judging. Someone being given over, if you will, for judgment. In fact, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 Peter says that the rebellious angels have been delivered to the pits of darkness. Let's listen to this. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, the preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Words there committed. God committed them. God committed them. God committed them. Judgment involved in all that. Destruction involved in all that. The word committed is the same word that is used here by Paul in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God committed them over. God gave them over. In other words, this is divine wrath. This is the divine wrath of God being manifested through his handing over of mankind to the very judgment that mankind has willfully chosen. God is not being unfair. God is actually being as fair according to the man's thinking that man wants. Man wants it that way. God says, have it your way. Notice Specifically, what God is giving them over to. Paul says, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Impurity. This is the very core of man's wickedness. The very core of his wickedness and why we see what we see happening today. And therefore, the desperate need for conversion. God is giving man over to the very core of his sinfulness. Paul says, to an impure heart. To an impure heart. In other words, it's because the very core of man's heart loves impurity that God has abandoned men to their desire. This is their desire. He has given them over 
in the lusts of their hearts, in the epithumia of their hearts, in the strong desire of their heart, to the very thing they desire, impurity. And so we know, we know that man is not a victim of his circumstance. Man is not a victim of his environment. He is not a victim of his upbringing. He is not a victim of the things around him. It isn't because man has finally figured out that anything is okay when it comes to sexuality and gender. That's why man is doing what he's doing. Man hasn't figured out anything. In fact, all it shows us is that man is more insane than we thought he could be. Man has determined his way. That's what Paul is saying. He's determined his way by the very inner disposition of his own sinful heart. These are the very words of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 through 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Remember, the Pharisees were all the, the outside. Do the things on the outside. Keep the rules. Keep the laws. Keep all these religious things. And that's what makes you righteous. Jesus says, no, that doesn't do anything. You think that's what defiles you? That what you do on the outside? No, no. It's out of the heart that these things flow. You're defiled on the inside. And so because of that, Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. What you see happening here is an unregenerate, wicked heart who has rejected God, and from it the springs of life are flowing. So the heart, when the, when the Bible speaks of the heart, metaphorically it's speaking of the very core of the nature of man. Not speaking about that organ in your body that's pumping blood through your body right now so that you're awake. And No, it's talking about the very core of who you are. This is what drives man. And it does not mean what we may commonly hear in our day. Man is not driven by feelings and emotions. They're not driven by feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions are so deceptive. The heart, biblically, is what drives feelings and emotions. This is the very will of man. God gave us over to our very own wicked will. What Paul is saying is that the very will of man is driven by his own lust. It's driven by his own lust. Lust is just another word for strong desire. It's epi through me in the original language. It means strong desire. If you have a strong desire for something, it's right to say that we lust after it. Might be a good thing that you have a strong desire for, but lust is a good word. It doesn't necessarily have to be used in a, in a context that deals with sexuality. 
Lust, by biblical definition, is simply something we pursue with great fervor, great energy, strong desire. And yet here, and normally in Scripture, it's used to describe the desires that are sinful, godless desires. So think about it. The act of sinning, the carrying out of sin, or the act of a sin, is produced by the strong desire of the heart. This is why Jesus said, don't, You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, do not even hate someone in your heart. Why? Because it's hate that produces murder. It's hate that produces murder. So sinful activity comes out of the desire of the will, out of the wickedness of a heart that has a desire for that which is forbidden by God. So man reaps the fruit of God's wrath, and that wrath is seen through God handing them over to the very baseness of their own heart, and the net effect is self-willed impurity. That's the net effect. Self-willed impurity. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Impurity is an interesting word in the original language. It's it's akatharsia. Akatharsia. Now, some of you go, that, that word sounds somewhat familiar because the root word is cathartic. Cathartic. We know what cathartic means. Cathartic simply means to, to cleanse or to purge out. To get rid of, if you will, toxins, right? When someone purifies their body in a, in a physical way, some kind of way here on the earth physically, it's said to be a cathartic experience. A very cleansing, a very purging, a purifying experience. Well, the very opposite of that is a catharsis. A catharsis or a catharsia. The general term for uncleanness. It was often used in, in the ancient times with the Apostle Paul to describe things that were decaying, things that were rotting, gangrenous things. So in a biblical moral sense, it's normally used to describe those things that are associated with sexual impurity. Sexual impurity. So instead of mankind actually purging himself of uncleanness through his rejection of God and his attempts at his own self-righteousness, instead of purging himself from unrighteousness, his self-righteousness has actually plunged himself into greater uncleanness. In other words, instead of running from impurity in all of its forms, because of his self-righteousness, because of his desire to worship self, God gives him over to the full reflection of every kind of impurity. And you can name it whatever you want. LBGTQ2, gender identity dysfunction, and all the rest of the sexual immorality that's running rampant in our world today. So what Paul is exposing for us then is the outflow 
Paul is exposing for us the sowing of rebellion in the heart of man, which has come to full fruit. It has produced full and complete uncleanness and the net effect upon man and his self-willed impurity. Notice verse 24 is that his body might be dishonored among the rest of the world around him. That his body might be dishonored. This is the point. When man seeks to place himself in the position of self-glory so that he seeks his own way of life, he seeks his own self, he seeks to satisfy his own physical body through every kind of sexual sin, nothing is off limits. When that happens, you know that God has declared for man to have it his way. Therefore, their physical bodies, along with their very souls, are dishonored. It's an interesting word. Another interesting word here, dishonored, means to abuse. That's what it means, to abuse. Their bodies, so that their bodies might be abused among them. Sexual immorality is not a myth. It is not a stereotype. It is self-abuse. It is self-abuse. And conversion is the only answer. Abuse, interesting word, to use something other than for what it is intended. You abuse it. And so here the body, both physical and spiritually, was never intended for sexual impurity, and yet that is what we see running rampant in our society. Sexual immorality all over the place, and now being publicly legalized. In fact, in Canada it's now a felony, to even speak about it. A felony. The attention given by our Western society alone is staggering, let alone globally. Sexual promiscuity, perversions of every kind are glamorized around every corner in every part of media because man has rejected God because man needs conversion. All in the name of humanism, all in the name of the worship of mankind, humanity has been now dehumanized so much so that we now abuse each other in every way, whether it's sexually, whether it's criminally, whether it's economically, whether it's verbally, we just abuse one another. We're dishonoring one another all over the place. The sad part about all this is it's not new. Nothing's new under the sun. Solomon said it, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. That's the condition. God You remember, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their rejection of him and their manifest sexual sin. 
And so the body that indulges in sexual immorality not only sins against the Lord, they sin against their own body. That's the point Paul's making. This is the very core of man. Why? Verse 25, because they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Simply that word exchange means they had it. They had the truth of God. Why? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his internal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so they are without excuse. Everyone knows about God. Even the atheist who denies that God exists, which is kind of moronic to me. Why would you deny something you believe doesn't exist? They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And when it comes to sexual immorality, they've exchanged the truth of God, how God has created them for the lie that everything goes, that everything's okay, that you can just choose who you are. You can choose what you are even so far now as to abuse children, even in the youngest of ages, grade school ages, whereby they can start therapies to change their very sexual orientation without the parents' consent in our country. You talk about child abuse. That is at the highest level. And so, beloved, the reason there is so much impurity in our world is because the world has turned, back, turned its back on God. And God has removed his restraint from men. And the reason that man has outlawed conversion is because man hates God. And God has left man to the very pollution that floods his very soul. And the outcome is every kind of uncleanness known to man. It's a grotesque picture, isn't it? It's grotesque. The very creation of God swimming in a cesspool of willful sin, all because they refuse to acknowledge God. All because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. That says it all, doesn't it? not God's fault. Man has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've suppressed the only real truth in their own unrighteousness, and the only thing left is for man to submit to the only thing that he's left with, and that is a lie. A lie. Falsehood. Very basic truth of God's existence. And by that existence, the right to demand honor and glory from his creation. That's what it says in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. God demands honor from his creation. He deserves honor and glory from his creation. Yet because man has refused the basic truth that God does exist, man has been rejected in totality and man has fully embraced his own fabricated lie. 
Listen, to forsake God is to forsake truth. To forsake Christ is to forsake God. Why? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So to forsake God is to forsake truth. To forsake Christ is to forsake truth because God and Christ are one. And Jesus said, I am the truth. So to forsake God or Christ or truth is to reveal your very slavery to a lie. And in your slavery to the lie, you show yourself to be a child of the father of lies. Satan himself. John 8, 44. Jesus said that. Jesus told the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Because you will not believe. And the only answer to this problem is conversion. The only answer is that people be converted to be changed to be made alive, to be taken from darkness and put into light. We cannot stop preaching conversion. They silence one person preaching conversion. All should rise up and say, no, we will preach conversion. Another faithful one needs to stand in the gap and preach conversion. Paul said to the church in Corinth, Turn over really quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the beautiful reality of God's mercy. The Corinthian church, this, this place where sin was running rampant, sexual immorality was happening in ways that even were unspeakable. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, do you not know? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor, or covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty dismal picture. If that's the, the character, the outworking of the life, they're on the road to hell. There's, there's no kingdom of God in the future for them. Paul says to the Corinthian, Corinthian people, listen, verse 11 is the glorious mercy of God. And such were some of you. You know what that is? Conversion. You were like this, but now you're like this. You've been converted. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's how. Oh, the grace of God. The same God who says, have it your ways. The very same God who sent his son to this earth that he might die for sinners like all of us. All of us were in that category. Don't be deceived. All of us were, were there. Lovers of self acting out the self-will and the self-rejection of God in ways in which our sin was manifest. And we may not have been as evil as our heart could have been, 
but we were just as evil as anyone ever caught in sexual immorality and a lifestyle that is against God. And yet God converted us. He made us alive. He washed us. He sanctified us. He justified us in the name of His Son. Such were some of you, Paul says. You know what that means, beloved? That means there is hope for all sinners. There is hope for the sexually immoral. There is hope for the gender confused. There is hope for all of those who have been given over. You can be washed. But that washing comes only through repentance, faith, and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it comes. You must be converted. If sin will be acknowledged, if it will be confessed and turned from, if one will place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, your sin will be forgiven you and you will be converted. Oh, what glorious truth. You will be made new in Christ. The old will pass away. You will be a new creature in Christ. You don't have to be abandoned by God. Ah, oh, beloved, as Christians, we must never stop preaching conversion. We can never stop. There are men this very day standing in pulpits in Canada preaching a message that is against the law, and they may be arrested. And by God's grace, someone else must stand up and fill those places. Why? Because such were some of us. Because men need conversion. Conversion through Jesus Christ is the only answer. Back to Romans chapter 1. Paul ends those two verses in Romans. by saying that when men turn from the truth, the inevitable outcome is that they worship and serve self rather than God, who is blessed forever. Reject God. There's only one thing left, and that is the lie and the worship of self rather than the one who is to be worshipped the one who is blessed forever. That's Paul's way of just having us, having walked through the mire and muck of the sinfulness of man's heart. That's Paul's way of just having us look up and take a deep breath and see God. The very one who has removed restraint so that we would know that's the only way out. The only way out, God. Acknowledging God. God said through the apostles in Acts, there is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven 
that is given among men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we acknowledge your greatness. You are God. You deserve worship. You deserve glory. You deserve honor. You deserve all praise. None should be for us. We are simply unworthy to even be sitting here in your very presence. We who sit here saved by the grace that you have showered upon us in Christ, whereby you granted us faith that we might believe in him, turning from our sins. We were lost in our sinfulness, abusing ourselves in every kind of way, even sexually at times, Lord. But you washed us. You sanctified us. You set us apart unto holiness and you justified us. You have declared us righteous in the eyes of you by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A foreign righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but that of Jesus Christ alone. And we sit here this day, not as trophies of our work, but as trophies of your grace. And we worship you because you are the one who is blessed forever. And we can sit here this day praying, pleading, preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. all because of your grace and mercy upon us. And with a a loud and collective voice, we can say to you, Amen and Amen. You are the great Amen. Lord, may we have the courage and strength by the power of your Spirit to never back down from preaching the Gospel that converts the lost to new life. All for your glory and praise through our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.